How cool is that? I just love hearing Angel unpack her story. And what's been really fun is the authenticity of it. All three services this weekend, just different nuances of how, how God's been at work in her. And just because you're not up here on the platform doesn't mean that you can't testify to something really similar. Well, good morning. Great to see you guys here, and, and I know you were saying it louder than it sounds muffled-wise. You know, you say good morning, and, uh, but it, it is a good day. This is the day that the Lord has made. We're glad you're here with us on site, and also those of you who have joined us online. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Arlene and I had a pretty bizarre experience regarding our two youngest sons. She and I were finishing up at a restaurant, and she headed out to the car while I was taking care of the check. And while I was doing that, I put my cell phone in my pocket and I didn't feel it vibrating. And I was interacting with, the, with our server and then as I was coming out of the restaurant and our car wasn't too far from the interest, I took my phone out and saw that I had a missed call from Stephen, our youngest son. And while I'm looking at that, I got in the car and looked at Arlene and she had a very alarmed look on her face, and she said, it's Stephen. And then things started to get unpacked. I, I won't outline the rest of the conversation with you. I'll simply tell you this is what had happened. Uh, a long-term teacher of, of, of Stephen and Joel's during high school, throughout high school, great, great guy, had been given some wrong information, but he didn't know it was wrong. And the information was that I had died. And it, was, it turned out to be someone else with the same name. But what had, he had done is texted Stephen and Joel and said, I want you to know I am so sorry about your dad's passing. And he, he talked about the impact that I'd had on him and on the community. It, it was just this surreal. They sent me a copy of it. To, and so Stephen got that and called me, and I didn't answer, which I just about always do if there's any way that I can. So then he called Arlene, and in a shaky voice said, uh, where's, where's dad, how, how is dad? And so then I got on the phone, I said, hey buddy, and then he explained, I said, I am so, far, I'm so sorry. Now we didn't know all the backstory at that point. We found out later that the mis about the misinformation and somebody with the same name. But the bottom line is there were a few, few minutes there that Stephen and Joel were thinking that I was gone. And I put myself in their shoes, my heart ached for them, even though it was for just a, a few moments. And, to ask them, okay, what, what was it like to discover that I wasn't gone? And the relief, obviously. And I was unpacking that, and I rewound 2,000 years. If we could ask a few teenage and early 20s and 30s men and women and step into their sandals and say, what was it like? Not just to hear about Jesus' death, but to see it. And then to see him alive again. 
Relief? Oh, sure. I'm, I'm sure they would have said that, but they would have said a lot more than just relief. In fact, they do throughout the New Testament. We're going to unpack that some today, but I want to ask you a question regarding wherever you are in your journey. Bring, don't just say this is a religious question category. This is in your, in your relationships and finances and health and you know, the funerals, the parties, the, uh, the challenges. Here's the question. What does... Jesus' resurrection mean to you? How about you? How about you? It's not just relief. It's way more than that. In fact, the answer to that question should be equally important whether you're a follower of Christ or not. If you're not yet a, a Christian, that is the ultimate question, because if he isn't risen, you know we're way, all wasting our time. But if he is, if, as a follower of Jesus, we look on that as the epicenter of the cadence of our lives in, in terms of the renewal that we have as human beings and all that goes with that. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, one of the historical documents, and yes, I'm saying it in that way because it is, about the resurrection of Jesus. But first, let me frame it. We're finishing up our series that we're calling Awaken. We've been in this for a couple of years off and on, going through John's gospel. We're rounding the turn. We see the finish line. An awakening is something that the gospel does in us, and more specifically, it's what God does in us through His Spirit. Yes, we awaken, and we participate in that awakening. We wake up, but bottom line, it's Him at work with us, and He's awakening us not into a religious trajectory, but a restored trajectory as human beings were meant to live. You know the verse. You've got it memorized. I'm bringing it up one more time. John 10.10. 10. It's his mission statement at the, at the, at the uh, epicenter, the foundation of the gospel of John is this statement of Jesus. You know, in the garden, in the fall, the enemy came along and he stole, he killed, he destroyed what was of God. And Jesus says, that's what the thief does. But let me tell you why I've come. I've come that they, meaning you and you and you and you would have life and have it to the full, perisua, abundant, lavishly, overflowing, restored into what it was meant to be. The word life there is not bios, referring to heart beating or lung breathing. It's not suke, regarding to awareness. It's zoe. It's the life of God. There's no way to get that life other than with God, and we were designed to be alive in that way. But as human beings, we're born dead in our sin, and therefore, yes, we love, we laugh, we create, but we're capable of a lot of other things as well. But it's, it's, it's muted under this cloak of death. And Jesus said, I've come to restore what was good. God didn't say, boy, that first plan didn't work out. Let me come up with something different. He said, elected in the garden according to his sovereignty to say, I'm going to choose instead of destroying things and starting over, I'm going to glorify myself by restoring what I've made. And that's why John is so excited, and he writes, you know this verse as well. We're going to look at it one more time. We'll be dealing with it here in just a couple of weeks. John 20, 31, he says, I've written these things. I've included what I've included underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for two reasons. Number one, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
that you would come to Christ, come to faith in Christ, believing his claims, receiving him as Lord and Savior. But then he adds and, 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 and we miss this in religious circles, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's a belief that I did that day that I came to Jesus. There's a belief that I do every day. My salvation is not in jeopardy, but my experience of that life of Christ, I came alive when I trusted Jesus. Now the question on a daily basis, will I experience that life of the gospel? We talk about that being two parts, part A and part B. Part A is believing in Jesus as the Messiah. We talk about that being orthodoxy, right belief. And so often in churches, that's all we care about. You believe the right things, great. You're going to go to heaven, fantastic. Figure out the rest of the week. We'll see you next Sunday. And he says, no, no, it's not just orthodoxy, it's vibrancy, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And especially in our charged age that we live in, where there's so much going on, as Nathan so, so beautifully prayed about regarding our culture. And so often, what we want to do if people, culture's not responding, we want to scream our orthodoxy a little bit louder. Maybe they just didn't hear it before. Could it be that what our culture needs from the church is not orthodoxy screamed louder, but vibrancy demonstrated more beautifully and authentically, where men and women are learning to walk with Jesus? Now, when it comes to the resurrection, the resurrection applies to both of those parts. Got two pieces of paper here. One's a guarantee. The other is a ticket that grants me entrance. The resurrection, if you were and I were to t talk to those disciples, say, hey, what's resurrection mean to you? It, it would relate to both of these. Here's how it works on that. When it comes to orthodoxy, the resurrection of Christ is really the guarantee. It's the validation that who he claimed to be was true. If he hadn't risen from the dead, I can't believe anything else about him because he said he would rise from the dead. And if he was lying about that, how can I trust anything else? So there was an aspect of validation, guarantee with that. But there is also, also an aspect of inauguration, the resurrection. Those early, the early disciples, they saw the resurrection as the inauguration of the new heaven and the new earth's arrival that's going to take time. But the process of restoration just accelerated. Jesus is referred to as the firstborn of the new creation. And we're told that we're following him in resurrection. We've been raised with him. And so the disciples, what does his resurrection mean to you? It means... He, it, there's validation. He, 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 he really is who he claims to be. And all he promised is guaranteed to be true. But there's also an invitation to, he inaugurated and gave me a ticket into that new day. It wasn't a doctrinal stance for them. It was everything about their cadence. It wasn't merely some theological belief. It was orthodoxy and vibrancy. It wasn't just vibrancy, it was orthodoxy. It wasn't just orthodoxy, it was vibrancy. And John delves into both of those worlds. I love John. Of the four gospel writers, he's my favorite. 
because he's right and left-brained, as am I. I'm, I frustrate people to no end who want to put me in a box of one or the other, and uh, it's hard to do that. John is heart and mind, both are important. And, and when he starts talking about the gospel, talking about the person and work of Christ, there's both experiential and evidential going on. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John 20. It's the next to the last chapter in John's gospel. And I want you to hear him as he writes, and he's writing, I mentioned earlier, as a historian. But he's also writing experientially. It's both and. It's orthodoxy and vibrancy. It's guarantee and it's ticket. It's validation and inauguration. What he does is he describes something that they, they experienced on the Sunday morning after Jesus was crucified on Friday. Now, first let me tell you this about Jewish burial customs. It's, it's helpful to know that they didn't bury people six feet under. A typical burial for, in Jewish culture at that time was usually in a cave. Uh, and the caves had shelving in them, carved out of the rock. I've actually been in a few of those, those early first century, second century uh, graves, uh, tombs in, in, in Israel. Usually it was owned by a, a family. Uh, sometimes there were several families that occupied it, and so you would have a number of shelves there. And we finished last week with them taking the corpse of Jesus, wrapping him in linens, and they had about 75 pounds of spices, remember? The spices, the purpose of those, we talk about embalming, yes, in a sense, but it's not in, in contemporary uh, embalming language. That's not what was happening. It wasn't preventing decay. It was simply masking the odor of the decay. So the corpse would be wrapped in the burial cloth, laid on the shelf, and those spices would cover up the smell of the decomposition because in the course of the one body being decomposed, somebody else could die. And so they would come in and out of the tomb. Once the body had fully decomposed and just the bones were left, they would go through the grave clothes, take the, take the bones out and put them in an ossuary, a, a bone box, and put that bone box either on a shelf in that tomb or take it elsewhere. So that's what was going on. Big stone rolled over down, and Mark tells us it was an immensely large stone. It's probably of a wealthy family that said, you may use our tomb to bury Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 1 of John 20, but early on that first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, <sighs> boom, there we go right off the bat. You talk about the veracity, the historicity that of, about the gospel accounts. If the disciples were making this up, I'm sorry to say this, but it's true, uh, back in first century Jewish culture, a woman's testimony was not a valid testimony in a court of law. All four gospel writers talk about the women being the first ones on the scene. If they were making it up and wanting to create a lie, they wouldn't have begun with something that was so abnormal and as a result saying, you know what, it doesn't matter, their accounts don't matter. Man, I could get going on that. I'm going to keep reading. It's beautiful though. 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple, now John's favorite reference for himself was the other disciple usually accompany that with the one who Jesus loved. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. And by the way, he's not saying that because Jesus loved me and nobody else. He's just talking about the special relationship that he felt that he had with Jesus, which he did. Verse 4. I love this one. John's writing this as an old man. And uh, if I were a betting man, I'd put a lot of money on the a smile appearing on John's face as he put quill to parchment for this line. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. There's a little, I remember, I was faster. I mean, there's no other real, why else would you put that he outran him? But it was just John being John. He bent over and he looked in, verse 5, at the strips of linen lying there, but not, did not go in. Now, the word that's translated lying there is a word that means to place. It's not just they were strewn about, in other words. There's been some resuscitation or some theft or whatever. It, it, those, the linens were placed, in fact, we're told in the other gospel accounts in one. It, it was as if it was like a chrysalis that had been evacuated, a cocoon that had been evacuated, and it was demonstrable. It was the grave clothes that immediately made a believer out of a number of the disciples and was instrumental. Let's look at that. Let's go back. There's, a, there's three different Greek words that all could be translated in English, saw, but they each mean something different, and there's a progression. It's a progression that you and I encounter on a daily basis. I encounter it on a daily basis. I encounter it in the sense of looking to the resurrection. Daily, I grapple with the resurrection. In the face of fallenness and pandemics and difficulties and unanswered questions, I come every day, one way, shape, or form, Jesus, are you risen or not? I look at the empty tomb, but I don't just stop there. This is what happened. He looked over, he bent over, verse 4, and looked in. The word there is, is, the word there is blepo. It just means to see something. Okay, he just saw it. Verse 6, but Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. Theoreo is the word there. It means to see with reflection. It's where we get the English word theory from. In fact, the other gospel writers tell us that Peter was pondering. So he didn't just see it and say, whatever. He saw it and say, what does this mean? Keep going. Verse 7, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Orao. So there's, 
There's seeing, eh, whatever. And there are too many people that look at the resurrection like that, believers and unbelievers. I'm not real sure the depth of a person's walk with Jesus who just does that. But plenty of people, okay, oh, they say he rose from the dead, okay, whatever. But then there's theoreo, which is seeing and pondering. And then there's oreo, which is seeing and believing. In fact, that phrase, that word, is a word that appears in a lot of Jewish court records for credible witness, sawing, seeing something to the point of it making a believer out of them. And on a daily basis, I'm not just to be aware of the resurrection, I'm to ponder the resurrection as a result of pondering that resurrection, engaging with it and believing to the point that I experience life in His name in every aspect of my journey. And when we talk about resurrection, what we're referring to is not a resurrection of Christ's memory or his influence or his ideas. You'll see a lot of that in uh, churches that are, uh, have strayed at Easter time because it's an affront. It's just uh, intellectually humiliating to acknowledge that somebody rose from the dead. So let's talk about the resurrection of his ideas. When we refer to the resurrection, when the disciples are referring to the resurrection, what we're referring to is his literal, bodily, historical resurrection from the dead. And they proclaimed that resurrection by way of validating who he was. They lived out that resurrection by way of walking in the, it, through the inauguration, through the gateway. They had now a ticket to a new life, a life that was restored. And you see it come up over and over and over in their preaching just right away in Peter's first sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 32 says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, over and over and over. They're proclaiming with confidence. What's the root of their confidence? Listen, if you're not a follower of Christ, start reading books on the resurrection. Pick one by uh, Lee Strobel or, or William Lane Craig. There are plenty of people over the course of history who've thought, gone out to disprove the resurrection. But if, in, in a, if I were to bring it into a concise fashion, here are the resurrection realities that the disciples were immensely aware of, and it's resurrection realities that you and I can connect with. If Jesus is risen, it's because of these three facts. The empty tomb, his appearances, and transformed disciples. There's no other way to explain the empty tomb other than Jesus' resurrection, meaning that the tomb was empty. That's a historical fact. Only, there are only five possibilities, one of which is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The others are the disciples hid the body. Well, the disciples gave their lives. You don't give your life for a fact that you know to be true. Now, people have given their lives for something they thought to be true and they were mistaken, but you don't give your life for something that you know is a lie. 
the political religious leaders stole the body, then they, then they would have produced it when this movement started that he rose from the dead. They'd said, you guys are nuts. Here's the rotting corpse. Grave robbers. The grave was robbed. There's, there were aspects of the Roman guard that was up there, and they had extra security. These fearful disciples couldn't have got in to, to take the body, nor could grave robbers. Jesus wasn't actually dead, is one more, that he swooned, that he fainted, that he was kind of, he had, been, he had been flogged and beaten and tortured, and he was unconscious for three days, and then he woke up on Sunday morning, took off his, and revealed his Superman cape and pushed the stone away and just got rid of the Roman guard. That's why the record says he bled, blood and water came from his side, a medical reality of his death. His appearances, he appeared at least 10 times in the Gospels, we're told he appeared to one, two, three, one time upwards of 500 people at one time. This is, these things were written during the lifetime of those people who could have refuted it. The transformed disciples, at least six of them were crucified according to history. Four or five others were killed. Matthew was said to be pierced by arrows. John was the only one who didn't die a martyr's death. And it's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the… and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And more than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God then he, that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied and you are wasting your time. And so are you. And so are you, and so am I. If he hasn't been raised, we're wasting our time. But if he has, <laughs> it's a game changer. Not in my religious life, it's a game changer in the trajectory of my humanity. So let's ask these disciples, hey, how did you respond to the news of finding out that Jesus was risen? More than relief, they would have said several things. You can go through the New Testament and find plenty more. I'm just going to give you four that come out in the New Testament from these disciples. One, they would say, is I, the resurrection enables me to live with confidence about a number of arenas. One is regarding my salvation. It's not just, well, I get, we'll try this. We'll see if it works. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. When I say salvation, you know, you see the bumper stickers, Jesus saves, you want to save from what? I'm not just referring to, well, he forgives sins and you're assured of heaven. Yes, it is that, but it is so much more. Salvation is a powerful, holistic term in Scripture, and we have so minimized it in Western Christianity. Well, are you saved? That means you're forgiven and headed to heaven. No, the salvation is I, I was saved. I am being saved. I will being, be, be saved. I did believe in Christ. I am believing in Christ, and I will 
ultimately experience His life. Salvation is not just about life after death. It's about life before death. It's about being fully alive with the Spirit of God. There's an agenda going on, and Jesus did not come to start a religion. He came to renew the cosmos that was groaning under the weight of our rebelliousness against Him. Romans 8 says, and creation groans in anticipation of that great day when you and when you and when you is, you is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. When Jesus rose from the dead, He inaugurated a new day, the restoration of all things. It's a process that's not yet complete, but it's this process of not just individuals being saved, not just the earth being saved, but the cosmos being saved and redeemed and rescued. Jesus said in John chapter 11 to Lazarus' sister, after he had died, he said to her, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? There is life before death and life after death in that statement. And it would be very appropriate to I'd say, how could I pray for you on Monday? And you say, I, I just need salvation. Biblically speaking, that would be very accurate. In terms of our subculture, that'd be weird. If you're a follower of Christ, then the appropriate thing would be for me to say, whoa, 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 I thought you were already saved. Yes. But every one of us has something in our journey where we need saving right now. We need rescuing right now. We need restoration right now. And if I were to ask the disciples and get in their sandals and sit down and have a cup of tea with them, they would say, we have great confidence in our salvation. Past tense, yes, we're forgiven. Present tense, he will be enough. Future tense, he's going to complete all things. Another, you look through the New Testament, you can see the notion of our status is secured through the resurrection. They say, hey, let me tell you what the resurrection means to me. I know who I am. Arlene and I have a friend she, who uh, had her identity stolen. And just telling us about what a hassle that was. The reverse actually happens in the gospel. We get instead of, we experience instead of identity theft, we experience identity gifts. We become the children of God. Uh, look at what Peter, remember Peter? The slow one? Verse 3, chapter 1, 1 Peter, praise be to God, the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 7, Paul says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that... In, that means right now, there's in some, to some degree, you and I are seated at the right hand of God. We've been resurrected. We died with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We were raised again with Christ. We are now part of that arrival of the new heaven and the new earth in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's say, what's it, what, what it, what's it like to know about the resurrection? It means I have great confidence in my salvation, but also great confidence in my status. I'm a king's kid. I'm loved. I'm lavish. There's a third one. 
You see this happening throughout the New Testament. They'd say, oh, let me tell you, on a daily basis, I have strength. I can be confident in the, the resurrection power being available to me. What are you dealing with right now? Yeah, the pandemic, but what are the subsets of that? What are the different things? There's, there's not a one of us who doesn't need to be aware of the salvation or not aware of the salvation that we need today, who are not needing a reminder about our status as king's kids and living love, but we're also, there's not a one of us who doesn't need strength for some challenge. And Paul writes in, first, in Ephesians 1, he says, I pray, guys, in the midst of your Monday morning relational, financial, physical, emotional, health stuff. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. There's that inheritance word coming up again. But then he says this, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What kind of power is it? It's the same as that mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Wait a minute. Is he saying that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to me right now? Yes, unequivocally. That's why N.T. Wright, a great hero of mine theologically, said, we're not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to the place where we find that we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely on the God who raises the dead. He said, it's a great thing when you get to the point where you realize, man, this pit is deep. But as Corey Tim Boone said long ago, we discovered there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And we come to the end of our resources and that's when we can finally say, resurrected Christ will you give me your strength? And he says, absolutely. Just take the next step and trust that I will be enough. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about this whole notion of the strength. He says, I want to know Christ and the doctrinal reality of his resurrection. Well, yes, but that's not what he says there. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, what I'm dealing with, which was what enables him to say in the very next chapter in Philippians 4, verse 13, he says, I can do how many things? Belt it out through that mask. How many things? Everything. Everything that needs to be done for the glory of God. And my God, I can do through him who gives me strength. What kind of strength is resurrection power? So I'm sitting here saying, hey, Peter, John, what's resurrection mean to you? They're not just going to say relief. They're going to say, go so much deeper. I'm confident in my salvation. I'm confident in my status. I'm confident in my strength. But there's a fourth one. I'm confident in my hope. Hope. Which is what every one of us needs right now. And Peter, the slow one, he says, praise be to God, 1 Peter 1.3. I read it earlier. I'm going to emphasize something different this time, though. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Hope is not a Jedi mind trick. It is something based on something that happened in time and space and history. If Jesus is risen, I can have hope. I can have hope for what's happening at the end of my life, which is something called death physically. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Yesterday, I watched a stream, a live streamed memorial service from Texas and listened to my dear friend Vance talk about his dad who died this past Wednesday on October the 6th. And it has special significance, not just because of how close I am to Vance, but because October the 5th is the anniversary of my dad's death many years ago. And his dad my dad had a lot of things in common, but supreme was their trust in Jesus. And so, yes, the resurrection gives us hope that death is not final. Physical death is not final. It actually is a transformation. It is something in which he is enough. How do I know that? Because he rose again. But it's not just through that that I have hope. I have hope through the events of today being part of something bigger. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. You guys know it's one of my favorites. For the glory of the Lord, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the garden before the rebellion, the glory of the Lord totally, totally overlapped everything. Rebellion occurred, not all glorified Him. We're in this process of not just redemption, but restoration. It's not a matter of orthodoxy, but also vibrancy in which one day, once again, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And my disciple buddies would tell me, let me tell you what the resurrection means to me. It means today as I take a step, even though tons of stuff might be going wrong, I know that the glory of the Lord will one day once again be restored completely, that the new heaven and the new earth will happen, that there will be a restoration of all things. And I say, how do you know that? And he will look at me and say, do you realize I saw the risen Christ? And if he can be raised in power, he is assured that he will continue that process. And I know there's a lot of stuff right now that don't make sense, but I'm taking each step knowing my salvation is secure, my status is secure, my strength is real, and therefore I can walk in hope. A number of years ago, Arlene and the boys and I were driving through Wyoming from a wedding, and Andrew had a brand new driver's license in his wallet, so he was driving. And there ain't a whole lot going on in Wyoming uh, often, and we all dozed off. Well, Andrew and this newness got so excited, had, was listening to music all, stopped paying attention to the gas gauge until the light came on. I don't know if I mentioned there's not a whole lot going on in Wyoming. You can go a long time. So he woke me up, said, Dad, um, there's a little problem here. So I looked at it, said, how many miles to go? And I'm thinking, oh, man, there's no cell signal. I'm thinking movies have been written about people that are in this predicament. Not a whole lot of cars out. So what did we start doing? The whole family kind of woke up and we started looking at signs for gas stations. And there were a few dilapidated ones and I didn't have a little confidence in those. 
I don't know when that one sign was put up, if there's still a gas station. But then there was one brand spanking new, new paint, a national chain that I was aware of, and it gave the exact mileage to the next gas station. We took that number and applied it to the mileage left on the dashboard, and everybody breathed a sigh of relief because the number of this one was greater than the number on the sign. We knew we had enough gas to get there. And do you realize the whole environment of the car changed at that moment? We turned the music back up, started laughing. Did we have gas? No. But did we have credible assurance that we were gonna get gas? Yes. And it makes all the difference. We're about to sing. And I asked the worship team to come on out. We're gonna make a proclamation. Let me tell you the proclamation that we're going to make. He has an ability to turn mourning into dancing, yes or no? How do we know that? Based on the resurrection. He has the ability to turn ashes into beauty, yes or no? How do we know that? Because Jesus Christ is risen. He has the ability to turn graves into gardens, yes or no? Yes, because he is risen, and what do you as the people of God say when somebody says that? They've been doing it over church history, not as a cute way to celebrate Easter, but the way to live our lives. He is risen. He's risen indeed, amen. Let's stand together. Jesus, thank you. We come before you right now, not doing religious polite stuff, we come before you as real men and women, before a real Savior in the shadow of a real resurrection, and we want to proclaim how grateful we are that you really can turn graves into gardens. You can give us the gift of reversibility in whatever area we think we're losing gas. You can assure us that you will get us home, that you will be enough. So right now, as we sing here and online, as we interact with this, would you inhabit our praise as a resurrection people? I pray this in the name of the one who is way and truth, but also life. Amen and amen.